Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the Gospel of Mark, to Mark chapter 11 for this morning's message and for our time together uh, here today. If you ha- are here today for the very first time at Crosslink, or maybe it's your first time in a long time, throughout the course of this year, we have been in a sermon series called Invited to Ask. And throughout the course of this series, what we've been reminded is, we've been reminded of what God has done to give us an open invitation for us to come to him in relationship to discuss anything at any time from anywhere. The reality is, God has given us prayer as an amazing privilege. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus Christ came to this earth, he lived a sinless life, he he died on the cross for our sins, and three days later, he rose again from the grave. And of course, we know that that's the heart of the gospel, that Jesus came and he lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He rose again. And because Jesus did these things, we can experience the joy and the blessing and the peace of having salvation, the gift of eternal life. But that's not the only benefit that is available to us because of what Christ did. The Bible says after Jesus rose again, he appeared to numerous witnesses, over 500 eyewitnesses at one time, and when the time came, the Bible says that he ascended to heaven. Today, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father where he is interceding for you and I today. Because Jesus has made a way for us to have a relationship with God, he has invited us to come to him, to talk to him, to relate with him, to share our burdens, to to intercede for others. He's invited us to come with our petitions. He's invited us to pray. We've seen that throughout the course of this year. Today we're going to take a little bit of a different focus. We've been focusing on what that call of our personal lives, individual prayer, should be in our lives. But today we're going to turn a little bit different of a a corner to focus on what corporate prayer should look like. What does it mean when the body of Christ comes together and how should our meetings and fellowships, how should they be impacted by prayer? I believe wholeheartedly this morning that prayer should not be just a part of our time together, but it should be a key component of our time together. In fact, prayer should be one of the distinguishing factors of who the church of the Lord Jesus Christ really is. If a church recognizes its need for God, if we truly recognize our absolute dependence upon God, we will be a praying church. Unfortunately, however, when we think about the things that are often important to us about a church, it's amazing how prayer is usually so low on the list. In fact, there might be some of you here today who are joining us for the first time and you are considering a church home and praying about where that might be. Or maybe you've come to this area in recent years and maybe you found Crossing now to be your church home and you're a member here, but typically when a person starts looking for a church home, we began to make a list of things that we're looking for. Maybe we want the music to be a certain style or a certain volume for our comfort. Uh, Maybe we we are curious, well, what's the preacher like? Uh, Does he wear a suit and tie? Does he wear a a purple robe? 
Or does he dress like he should probably wear a robe? I don't know. We look for all these different things. We wonder, what's the children's ministry like? And do they have small groups? Do they have some sort of discipleship program? What's their missions emphasis like? What are they giving in the community? And we ask all these different things. But so often, prayer doesn't even make the list. I wonder if God were looking for something in our lives, and I wonder if he were looking for something in our homes, and I wonder if he were looking for something in the church, what would be most important to him? The things that we come to value, the music and the style and the seat backs and the you know, bulletin or a worship guide or all these different things that we look at, are those things really important to God or is God looking for something different? Are those things just cultural things that we've come to expect along the way? I believe in Mark chapter 11, God shows us what he desires of the church. But what he desires in the church, he also desires in our homes and ultimately in each individual heart and life. Mark chapter 11, I want to ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. And I want to preach to you simply on the subject, a house of prayer. A house of prayer. The Bible says this in Mark chapter 11, speaking of Jesus and the disciples. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of what? Prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the beautiful day you've given us. I thank you for the time that we've already had to praise your name, the time that we've had to celebrate with these new believers as they have publicly demonstrated their faith in you, the time that we've already had to pray over this missions team. God, I pray now that you would remove from our mind any other distractions and any other things that could hinder us from hearing from you. God, I pray that we would not just hear today with our ears, but with our very hearts, our innermost being today, may we receive what you have for us. God, I pray today that if there's any way that we are putting on a facade or putting on a mask, God, I pray that even as you did with the religious leaders in Mark chapter 11, I pray, God, that you would strip it away and that you would bring to the surface the things in our life that you want to change. God, I pray that you would change us for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. A house of prayer. I have the style of house. Perhaps you would say you live in a ranch-style house, or perhaps you would say, well, my dream house is a colonial house, you know, or many of us in the area, we like that old rustic look of the farmhouses that have become so popular. How would you describe your house? Uh, my wife and I, we've had the privilege in our 16 years of marriage to live in three different houses, and of course, the third house we were able to purchase when we moved here three years ago. And I remember going through that process three years ago of of knowing that God was calling us here and for several months watching all the websites to see what houses were coming on the market. 
I remember, of course, in that process, making a list and contacting our real estate agent, who's a member in this church and a great agent. And I remember sending a list and saying, hey, at our recent visit, can we, can we see all of these houses? And she said, well, I'll see what I can do and we'll work it out. And I remember such excitement because every one of the houses on the list had caught our attention for one reason or another. But as we began to look at houses that day, I quickly came to the conclusion that some houses were advertised in an excellent way. They were staged in a certain way. The, the seller promoted the details of the house in certain ways. And literally, they gave images and they gave pictures to prove that their claims were true. And we would go into those houses, and, and many times we were, we were even wowed by some of the houses. But I also learned in that process that not every house is as advertised. You know what I'm talking about? There are some times at a house they'll paint pictures in certain ways and they'll give you some indicators along the way. But as soon as you get beyond the front door, as soon as you get beyond the surface, you realize that things aren't exactly as the seller had advertised. In fact, I remember going into one house and, and quickly as we walked in the house, I, I noticed a smell. And it wasn't fresh cookies in the oven, folks, Okay. It didn't take long before I got to a corner of the basement and I realized why I smelled that smell in the house. And I remember going into another house and literally, even as we approached the front door, I began to notice on the outside, the exterior, there were some places where the, the brick didn't look completely right. And when I got down to the basement again, I noticed that once I got beyond the surface, there were some things that you couldn't see on the website. There were some things that the seller hadn't actually told. There were some things that were obviously needing the attention of a master carpenter, an expert, to deal with so that there would be restoration and that the house could be structurally sound. Well, I'm convinced what was true in those moments of those houses that we are seeing, for many of us, our lives are very much the same way. It could be that even as a church, there are many churches that same way, where there's an outward appearance, there's an outward perception that everything's right between us and God, that things are a certain way. But I'm convinced this morning that if we would recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ knows every detail of our heart, even the very intentions and motives of our thoughts and our mind, if we recognize that this morning, I believe there are likely some things in our life that need the master carpenter's evaluation, his touch, and ultimately his change in our lives. In Mark chapter 11, that's exactly what was needed at the temple in Jesus' day. And the Bible tells us, some background to Mark chapter 11, that it was the time of Passover. This is, of course, the time that the Jewish people uh, had a time to remember when God had spared them from the death angel in Egypt. Maybe you remember that story as God had sent this plague of judgment against the Egyptians. And the Bible tells us that God gave the, the Israelites very clear directions. If you act in obedience and if you have faith in me and act in this way, then I will spare you. And when the death angel comes through Egypt, he will pass over your house if you've acted in faith and in obedience to me. And sure enough, of course, in that night, God spared the Israelites and God established with them the opportunity of Passover for the Jews to remember and to celebrate and to worship God for his faithfulness and his blessing and his protection in their lives. Mark chapter 11, the scene unfolds as it is now Passover. Jesus and the disciples are going to Jerusalem along with all the other Jews from the various parts of the world at that time. They're all coming together to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God, to pray, to offer sacrifices. This was a wonderful time in 
the Jewish culture. We understand the temple in that day was a very sacred place. It was a place that was specifically designed by God. God gave detailed instructions for every aspect of the temple, of how it was to be designed and how the gates were to be set up and how many gates there were to be and what the gates were to be called. God gave even detailed instructions about the garments that the priests and the scribes would wear and what these different parts represented. God gave incredible details. One of the things that's very interesting about that temple is that while the courtyards of the temple were open to various people, to Gentiles and to women and various other people, there was one part of the temple that was completely separated from the common man. That part was called the Holy of Holies. It was there in that Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt, and it was there beyond this huge thick veil that God invited the high priest to come and stand before him on one day of year, the day of atonement. No doubt the temple was a special and sacred place, a place meant to meet with God, to worship God, and to pray to God. Jesus in Mark chapter 11 goes to the temple to worship. He goes to the temple to pray. He goes to the temple to, to remember, of course, how the Father had intervened in the life of the Israelites. But when he gets there, he doesn't find what he was likely anticipating. Instead of finding a place of worship, instead of finding a place of prayer, instead of finding a place where people were helped, instead of finding a place where the sick were being healed, instead of finding a place where the poor were being, their needs were being met, instead of finding those places, he instead arrived at the temple to find the religious leaders of the day taking advantage of those that they should have been helping. And it's in that context that we begin to see Jesus' call for the temple, and ultimately, I would say, even the church today, to be a house of prayer. I want you to notice with me this morning three things about a house of prayer that I believe God wants us to hear this morning. It might get uncomfortable. It may not be what we want to hear, but I believe it's what God wants us to hear from Mark chapter 11. Three things. If you're ready to hear, would you say, I am? Three things I want us to see about this house of prayer. The first thing I want us to see this morning is Jesus' clear rebuke. Jesus' clear rebuke. Can you envision the scene unfolding in Mark chapter 11? I don't know that there could have been a more dramatic scene than what Mark tells us about in this chapter of his gospel as Jesus goes into the temple. Now, we understand this morning that this was not Jesus' normal behavior. In fact, uh, all throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus being very calm and very peaceful, very meek, full of grace and full of mercy. In fact, Jesus so oftentimes, not only did he act in that way, oftentimes he refused the attention. Numerous times where people that he healed wanted to declare him king and instantly wanted to go and tell a million other people. And Jesus would say, you know, basically don't tell anybody this. He was doing that because his hour had not yet come. But Jesus would calmly kind of pass through this place into that place without really much of a scene beyond the people that were healed. But in this moment, Jesus' actions are drastically different. In this moment, Jesus goes into the temple and frankly creates a scene that none of them in that day would ever forget, nor should we ever forget this morning. For background this morning, it's important for us to know this was not the first time that Jesus had been in this very temple. In fact, this is not even the first time that Jesus was cleaning house in this very same temple. 
In John chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, three years earlier, Jesus, as he started his earthly ministry, his first miracle is that he turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. But the Bible tells us in John chapter 2, the very next thing he did is that he went into the temple and there, the religious leaders there were taking advantage of the poor and they were causing, uh, bringing high charges for the various goods that they were providing. And Jesus in John chapter 2 rebuked them in that day three years earlier. Fast forward three years to Jesus' triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 21, and guess what we see? We see that the religious leaders are up to their same old tricks. They're back to their same old behaviors. They're doing the same exact thing that Jesus had to confront three years earlier. It's in that moment that we begin to recognize what was going on. Now, now this idea of, of selling uh, animals, if you will, for sacrifice, that was not a bad thing. Think about that for a moment. Jews traveling from all over the world, they wouldn't be bringing animals to sacrifice with them. They would come to this place in Jerusalem to worship and they would need to purchase something, whether that be a large animal or simply the doves. The doves, what the poor people would get to offer as a sacrifice. That was not a bad thing, but what was bad is that the Jewish leaders began to realize, hey, they've got nowhere else to go to get these animals for sacrifice. So they began to charge ridiculous prices for the goods that they were providing not only that, but that we understand from that culture that if they were giving a financial offering in their form of worship, it literally had to be given right there in the temple. And so the Jewish leaders, listen, they were charging high, ridiculous rates for their money exchange. Not only that, but the Bible tells us in John chapter 2 that these people had been bringing merchandise through the temple. And what that literally means is instead of the people walking around the temple to get to their desired location, they were using the temple like a common thoroughfare as a shortcut from one place to another. All these things were happening in what was intended to be a place of worship and a place of prayer. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, frankly, had turned the place of worship into a concession stand at a theme park, if you will. Ever been to a theme park before and you were hungry and you went into the concession stands and you ordered your french fries and you ordered a drink and they said that would be twenty two fifty, sir? And, and you feel like, what? Like, I got to give you a kidney to get fries and a drink? Are you kidding? You feel like you were charged an arm and a leg and you were taken advantage of? You ever felt that way before? That's exactly what was happening. But get this. It was all happening in the name of God. In fact, history records that the person who was behind the entire scheme was Annas, the high priest. The man who should have been the most godly man of the day, who should have been the leader of the day, who should have been the humble servant of the day, was actually the mastermind behind the whole scene of taking advantage of the well-intended worshipers that were coming to Jerusalem. And it's in that context that Jesus begins to rebuke. So here goes Jesus into the temple, and what does he do? Does he turn a blind eye to the sin that's going on? Does he look down at the ground because it's an awkward situation and doesn't want to say anything? D does he just stay silent? Does he ignore what? No, no, no. You know what Jesus does? Jesus confronts the truth head on. Jesus goes into the temple, and I'm telling you, as the scene unfolds, I cannot imagine a more dramatic moment. In my vivid imagination, I envisioned that Jesus was more dramatic than a Liam Neeson movie. I mean, like, he's going in and he is cleaning 
house. He goes in, and the Bible tells us he's throwing tables around. He's pushing chairs around. I mean, this is a scene. It's getting everybody's attention. I love how Pastor Michael kind of alluded to last week the way that Jesus' disciples in that moment were likely responding based upon their personality. I do think it's probably true that Thomas the doubter was probably like, oh my goodness, is this okay? Should we have asked permission before we do this? Is this gonna be all right, Jesus? And I'm sure not only was Thomas doing that, I'm sure Peter was trying to think, oh my goodness, I, can't, I don't know him. How can I deny him? How can I deny that I've been with him? I'm sure Andrew was running for someone, trying to find someone to tell, but James and John, the sons of thunder, I mean, at that point, they are like, woohoo, let's get him, Jesus. It's about time in this temple that we bust this place up. No, I'm sure Simon the zealot was so excited in that moment, he's already pulled out his sword. He's ready for a real battle. And Matthew, the tax collector, is like, not the pennies, not the nickels, not the dimes. He's, he's concerned about every penny like an IRS worker. But anyway, he's concerned about every little detail. Jesus goes in. Please understand, these were not the actions of a childish rage. These are the actions of a holy God, disgusted, by sin. These are the actions of a holy God over people and over sin and over situations where we put on a facade and we put on a mask and appear to be godly, but in our hearts, we don't know the very one that we claim to know. We don't know the very one that we claim to worship. Jesus in that moment, I believe, was disgusted by the sins of the people, and through his actions, he begins to rebuke. I understand we don't like to be rebuked. The word rebuke literally means an admonition or a scolding. None of us like, by show of hands, let me ask you, how many of you like to be rebuked? I mean, you just love a good rebuking, right? None of us, none of us. I don't care if you're a two-year-old child or if you're a 35-year-old, none of us like to be rebuked, but we need it at times in our life. I was reminded of that earlier this year. My brother and his family come up from Alabama and we were visiting together. And Growing up in Alabama, one of the things that we love to do is that we love to go shooting. We'd go out in the woods and we would, we'd shoot shotguns. And so my brother was here for Christmas and uh, we went to a, I'll just say a gun range and we were out shooting. And, and I'll be perfectly honest with you, we went out to you, we went out of the place, I mean, very late in the day and uh, the owner gave us some instructions, but there was hardly nobody else out there. And so my brother and I were kind of listening to the instructions, but kind of not, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? We got two good old boys from Alabama with shotguns. I mean, really, what's the worst that could happen? And so they kind of give some instructions, yeah, 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 sign the dotted line, you know, yes, I don't hold you harm, it's, it's me if something happens. And we go out to the first scene and we begin to shoot and we, then we go to the next setup and we begin to shoot and we go to the third. By the time we get to the third setup, the owner has gotten on a golf cart and is watching us from a distance. And my brother asked, hey Matt, what do you, what do you think that person's doing? And I said, we're watching to see how the professionals do it, baby. They know we're from Alabama, we know how to shoot. We got to the next setup and instantly the owner came up to us, got off that golf cart, and I think this guy thought he was Goliath all of a sudden because he came up to us, you know, all chest puffed up. He asked us a question about how many shotgun shells we put in our shotgun. I said, as many as it takes to shoot the thing, that's what I'm putting in here. And that owner let us have it. Based upon the rules that we signed and agreed to, the fine print that we really weren't paying attention to, we can only put two shells in our gun. I won't tell you how many we had, but anyway, the owner scolded us and scolded us. And, and I'm gonna be honest with you, we just sat there and we were kind of quiet and, and, and as a grown man, I didn't like it. 
I didn't like the rebuke, not one bit. But then the owner explained, last summer, someone in the same place was doing the same thing you did, and he accidentally shot his buddy's foot. And then I realized there was a reason behind the rebuke. What we were doing was ultimately not for our good. What we were doing was harmful to ourselves and potentially to others. The owner was exactly right. And while I didn't enjoy the rebuke, I needed the rebuke. And as we began to let that settle in later on in the day, we actually came to the point of laughing about it because it reminded us of our childhood and getting in trouble together. We don't like rebuke, but I'm telling you, we need God's rebuke in our life. When there are things in our life that are displeasing to God, we need God's conviction. We need God's rebuke so that he brings these things to the surface to convict us so that we can ultimately repent and be cleansed and be changed. We need God's rebuke because our hearts are desperately wicked and they're prone to wonder against the things of God. We need God's rebuke because our natural flesh wars against the things of God. We need God's rebuke because we struggle with faults and temptations that are quick to lead us astray. We need God's rebuke in order that ultimately we can repent and be right with him. Sadly, there are many in our culture, even immediate culture, that do not believe in or agree with the rebuke of the Lord. It's become a popular notion in some circles that God would never rebuke, but if that is true, they are speaking of their own little G God and not the true God of heaven. There's a movement in our culture that's expended really throughout much of our country today that has two statements. The first part of the statement is completely true, but it's the second part of the statement that is completely false. The wave of doctrine, they call it, is this. They say God is love. And to that I say, amen. First John chapter four, verse eight tells us God is love. But then they go on to say God is love and love is God. Love is God. In essence, what's wrong with that statement is that they ultimately define love by man's view, not by God's view. God's love is perfect, and it's holy, and it's pure. But when they say God is love, and love is God, what they ultimately are saying is, whatever I love, and whatever I like, and whatever I desire, and whatever I approve is God. See the problem with that statement? If God is love, and then love is God, since God is so loving, he lets me do what I love, I can do whatever I want to do. And that's exactly what they use as their argument to justify whatever the moment says and whatever the situation is. But please don't miss this. I am thankful to know that God loves us. But love without truth is hypocrisy. God loves us. I love the way Max Lucado says it. God loves you just the way you are. Praise him for that. But he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. In other words, God does love me, and because he loves me, and because he loves you, he begins to convict us, and he begins to show us things in our life that need to be changed and need to be transformed into the likeness of his son, Jesus. Now, I confess, I don't normally like the conviction. I don't like the discomfort. 
I don't like it when, when God begins to poke and prod here and there and show me things. But can I tell you, I love what it produces in my life because as God brings those things to the surface and I say, God, please forgive me and God cleanse me. God, God change me in this area of my life. He begins to make me more like Jesus and he gets all the glory for it. He loves me just the way I am, but he refuses to keep me that way. Some would say, oh, no, Jesus was always, he just loved people where they are, and he just accepted them where they are. It is true that he accepted them where they were, but he called for a change. John chapter 4, as Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, you remember the story, he's offering her life, living water, that if she'll drink of it, she'll never thirst again. But did Jesus say anything about her sin? He absolutely did. He asked her, so can you go get your husband, bring him here to talk? And she said, I don't have a husband. He said, you've said that, but you've actually been married to five different husbands, and the man you're currently living with is not your husband. Was Jesus gracious? Yes. Was he truthful? Yes. He addressed the sin and called for a change. And she went back to the village and said, come see a man that told me everything I've ever done. Jesus addressed the sin. Matthew chapter 19, the Bible tells us about a man, we simply know him as the young rich ruler. He came to Jesus and he said, oh, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? How can I know that I'm going to heaven? How can I know that I'm saved? And Jesus, said, Sell, uh, Jesus first said, keep all the commandments. He said, oh, I've done that since I was a child. And Jesus said, all right, do this. Sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. Give the proceeds to the poor. Was Jesus saying that if we can just go sell everything we got and then we got heaven? No, that's not what he was saying. What Jesus was doing was addressing what had become the idol and the God in this man's life. And so he said this, go sell it all and give it away. The Bible says that man left grieving. Why? Jesus had confronted his sin and he was unwilling to part with it. Or what about the illustration in John chapter 8 when the Bible tells us that the Pharisees, they had caught a woman in the very act of adultery and they drag her out into the, st the city streets and they bring her to Jesus and they say, the law says to stone her to death. And they, literally, they already have stones in their hand to, to fulfill the law. But what do you say, Jesus? Jesus stoops down. He begins to write in the sand. Some think that he wrote the names of the sins of the accusers. We don't know that for sure, but Jesus begins to write in the sand. And finally, Jesus speaks up and says, I say, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. One by one, the accusers begin to drop their stones and they walk away. Jesus looks down at the woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, Jesus, there are none. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, but listen to the next statement. Go and sin no more. So Pastor, what are you saying? There was love. There was grace. Yes, all those things are true, but please understand there was also truth. Jesus addressed the sin. He confronted the sin, and he called for a change in the life of those that he ministered to. Mark chapter 11, Jesus in this moment is going into the temple, cleansing the temple, and he's calling for complete change. We don't like the rebuke, but I'm telling you this morning, we need the rebuke. We need the conviction in order that these things be brought to the service so that we can confess them and turn from them. The second thing I want you to see this morning is Jesus' convicting reminder. Jesus' convicting reminder. If you're still with me, would you say, all right. Notice what Jesus now does. He has created a scene, as you can imagine. He's flipped over the tables, pushed the chairs out of the way. Jews from all over the place are gathered in the temple, and no doubt they are all looking intently at what's going on. Some of them are probably wondering, who does this guy think he is 
coming in here and doing this? Who, who has that kind of authority and that kind of right and that kind of power to tell the religious leaders what they should or shouldn't be doing here in this temple? Jesus begins to respond in verse 17. He begins to teach and to say to them several things, but we're gonna start with just the first four words. He says, is it not written? Is it not written? In Jesus' convicting reminder, the first thing I want you to see this morning is the exaltation of the word of God. What is Jesus doing here in this moment? He is exalting the word of God. I'll elaborate this in just a moment, but what he's in essence doing is he's saying this. He is saying the word of God is more important than your want, your will, and your whim. God's word is more important than anything you feel, anything that you're experiencing, anything that you desire to do, any idea that comes across your mind. God's word is exalted above all these things. Jesus goes to the temple, he cleans house, he begins to talk. He doesn't begin by pointing a finger. He doesn't begin by giving words of accusation. He begins with a powerful question, but simple. Is it not written? What Jesus is doing in that simple question is this. He's pointing them back to the word of God. Somehow and some way along the way, the people, specifically the Jewish leaders, had become comfortable with a religion, frankly, that wasn't pleasing to God. They had gotten comfortable going through the motions. They had gotten comfortable going to the temple and doing the same old thing over and over and over again. They had gotten to be professionals in the way that they schemed and made money and took advantage of those that they knew they could take advantage of. And Jesus comes back and says, listen, it's not about what you've been practicing. It's not about what you want. It's about what is written in the word of God. Well, what had God said about this temple? Think of this for just a moment. Almost 700 years before the birth of Christ, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 56, verse 7, and he said this. Listen to these words. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of, say it with me, prayer for all the peoples. Almost 700 years before the birth of Christ, God says, my house, this temple, is going to be a house of prayer. But now that Jesus is on the scene, he is seeing everything but that. He is seeing that the temple has been turned into a place of business and money-making schemes. It's turned into a place of sin and taking advantage of people. And so Jesus rebukes that and he says, listen, it's not about what you think. It's not about what you feel. It's not about what you want. It's not about man at all. It's about what God says. Can I say to us this morning, I believe in the church I believe in our homes. I believe in our very lives. We need to recapture the essence of what Jesus is saying and let our lives get back to this statement. What does the word of God say? If we're going to live a life that's pleasing to God, if we're going to have a home that brings honor to God, if we're going to have a church that is literally bringing glory to God, we got to get back to what God wants. And the way that we learn what God wants is to learn what God says. In other words, our direction for ministry and for life should not be based upon the cultural demands or the popular trends or even the counsel of the so-called experts. We must get back to, to this. What does God's word say? 
Because the reality is, is that if we get away from what God's word says, we either become unbiblical or extra biblical, and both are wrong. Unbiblical says, well, I know God's word says that, but I don't like that because it doesn't accept what I'm doing, so I'm either going to ignore it or I'm going to change what God's word says so that I can do what I want to do. It's completely unbiblical. Extra biblical says, well, God's word is just too limiting and too restricting. I, I, I have my own experience. And so now my experience outweighs and is more important than what God says. Both are completely wrong. We must get back to what does God's word say? Jesus simply says, it is written, and he points us all back to the authority of the word of God. So it begs a question for us. Do we see God's word as the authority in our life, or are we making ourselves the authority in our life? Like, 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 are we listening to God's word and then adjusting our life to what God's word says, or are we trying rather to adjust the Bible to what we want it to say? Jesus gave this very simple word where he exalted the word of God. Second thing Jesus did is this. He gives an explanation of the will of God. Just in case you forgot, guys, just in case you don't remember what the prophet said 700 years ago, is it not written, my house, please understand when Jesus did this, he was claiming to be God in flesh. Who, who, how was he to have the authority or the right to tell the religious leaders what the temple should be? He did have the authority because he was God in flesh, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, please understand this morning, there are many elements of a worship service when we come together like we have today. In fact, right after Jesus would cleanse the temple here, we see Jesus welcoming in people that he would help and he would heal, the blind, the sick, and the lame. Once the temple was cleansed, he welcomed them all in. And so a part of our worshiping together should be that people are welcome to come in, people who are hurt, people who need help, people who need healing, that people are welcome to come as they are. We also see in the temple right after this that Jesus begins to teach and begins to preach and begins to share, of course, the, the truth of the Old Testament at the time. The fact of the matter is we come together today, we have the preaching of God's word every time we gather. Uh, we see after this that the people came and they praised God, especially the children. And so we, of course, have seen that today as we come together to praise. But it's very interesting to me that when Jesus described the temple, he didn't say my father's house is a house of preaching. I kind of wish he did. I, I like good preaching, and I like to preach. Some of you say I like preaching too much, but I preach too long. But anyway, y'all can get over it. Anyway, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, maybe a house of singing. Man, I love worship. I loved it. The other night, Wednesday night, when we had our prayer time, I wish we'd worship for another hour. I mean, I love to sing. But he didn't call it a house of praise. He didn't call it a house of fellowship. He didn't call it a house of serving, a house of giving. All those things are appropriate, but what did he call it? He said it should be a house of prayer. So often, here at Crosslink, this is going to sting. Prayer becomes kind of an afterthought of what takes place when it needs to be a main thought of what takes place. 
So often when it comes to the church in America as a whole, listen, if you were to ask me, Pastor Matthew, I just was in Nicaragua a month ago, what's the biggest difference in the church in Nicaragua and the church in America? It is one word. It is prayer. They pray with such a desperation and such a brokenness and such a dependency upon God to work because they feel like if God doesn't move in this moment and God doesn't intervene, then we've missed it. And yet it's so often we become so content to say, we'll go through life just normal. We'll go through the motions. We'll go in and out and think nothing of it without God ever showing up. God, help us to recapture that dependency and that burden and that conviction to be dependent upon God in prayer. It's amazing how quickly we have lost sight of the value of prayer in our American culture. It is a well-known, it is a well-known fact amongst pastors that we could have a con- you could have a concert in the church and everybody that loves music is going to show up. You can have a potluck luncheon and say that Miss Betty's making banana pudding and Miss Susan's making fried chicken and everybody in the community will show up. People that you didn't even realize were on the church rolls will show up for some banana pudding and fried chicken. You, you announce special services. I mean, people come, but announce a prayer meeting. It'll likely be the least attended meeting of the entire year. Why is that? I think, sadly, if Jesus were confronting the church in America today, some of the first words out of his mouth would probably be, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer? But he went on to say, for all the nations. For all the nations. Please understand, prayer should not merely be a part of what we do or who we are. It must be the heart of what we do and who we are. Because prayer is a statement of our absolute dependence upon God. And it should be for all peoples, he says. Now, I've been in mission services where people have said, hey, this means we need to pray for every nation and every, and, and I believe that that statement is true. We should pray for every nation and for every person. First Timothy 2 teaches us that. But here's the reality. When Jesus said this quote, but, but you should be a, prayer, a house of prayer for all the nations, what he is saying is this should be a place for all to come to. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what language you speak. But literally, we can all come together to this place to talk to God, to relate to God, to ask of God. It's a place for all of us to come and pray. In fact, the Jewish leaders seem to totally miss this. Go back and study the Jewish culture in Jesus' day, and we quickly find that they greatly look down upon women. Not only that, they despise, I mean, with a deep hatred, the Gentiles. And yet when God gave the specific details of the temple, He allowed a specific gate for the women and a gate for the Gentiles, allowing them all to come in so that all could worship him, all could learn about him, and all could pray to him. Why? Because God's concerned about every single person. It doesn't matter, male or female, every single race. He invites us all to come. In fact, I can't help but to wonder if that was one of the very things that struck at the heart of Jesus in that moment. Because we know today from historians that the very location that the Jewish leaders were exchanging all the money and taking advantage of people didn't just happen anywhere in the temple courtyard. It happened in the courtyard of the Gentiles. 
the very place that the, remember the Gentiles, they weren't the Jews. They would come to this courtyard to ask questions about the living God of heaven, the living God of the Jews. They would want to learn, and having learned, they would give sacrifice, and they would pray, and they would offer worship. So in the very place where the Jewish leaders should have been doing missionary work, instead, they were taking advantage of them. Can you imagine what it would have been like in that day for a Gentile to hear about the God of Israel and to recognize God's favor amongst Israel, to make the long journey to get to Jerusalem so that you could learn about this God and you could worship this God and live your life for this God. And when you make the journey, you get there only to find that the godly people have just created a money-making scheme. That's what was happening. But Jesus gives this word of explanation. No, I desire my house to be a house of prayer for all people. Friend, when we come together, it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter your background, but we come together through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we come together to pray and to fellowship and this becomes a house of prayer. I'm telling you, it's a powerful thing when that happens. Pastor John Onwenechukwa, and that is his last name, I did not make it up, said it this way. We taste God's glory in a unique way as we participate together in corporate worship through prayer. That is a true statement. This past Wednesday, we had a, a night of prayer here at Crosslink, and it's the first time we had done it in this specific way, and we, and we came together as a body of Christ, and we were broken up into small groups, and we prayed together, and we worshiped together, and we interceded over the needs of the church together, and as people were leaving, I'm telling you, there were people that were saying, there was, there was something different about this tonight. There, there, there was just something different about the way God moved. There, there, and I will tell you, it would have made some of us uncomfortable the way people were shouting in praise. But I'm telling you, it was amazing. It, it was powerful how God was working and moving in hearts and lives. And people knew it as we were leaving because we didn't want to leave. We just wanted to be here. We wanted to be together. and wanted to keep worshiping and keep praying. It was a special time. And, and I'm here to tell you, what made it special wasn't the amazing music, though it was. What made it special wasn't this, this program and this format, though we did have some structure. What made it special was not that Pastor Scott has long hair like Jesus. That wasn't it. Just making sure you're with me. What made it special was how God was working and moving when the body of Christ came together in unity and prayed. We see this incredible explanation. But third, we see an examination of the worship of God. Please hear me. i got to move quickly. Jesus goes on to another statement. He says, but you have made it a robber's den or a den of thieves. This place that's meant to be a place of worshiping God and praying, you've turned it into a den of thieves. Now, please understand this morning, maybe you're sitting here today thinking, but pastor, wait a second, I'm not a thief. I haven't stolen anything. What are you talking about? How does this apply to me? Please understand that statement, a den of thieves or a robber's den, was used in that culture to describe someone who had committed a crime, someone who had done something wrong, who fled the scene and went to a populated place trying to blend in with their environment. A den of thieves was a place where if you had done something wrong, you would flee the scene and then you would try to blend in with the environment to act like you were completely fine. You were never over there. You didn't do anything wrong. I've been here all night. And it was kind of a scapegoat, if you will. You kind of blended in with the crowd, covering up the truth of what really had happened. Jesus looks at the religious leaders of the day and here's what, in essence what he's saying. He is saying, you're coming to the temple 
this place is meant for worship and this place is meant for prayer and you're putting on an outward appearance of being religious, an outward appearance of being godly, an outward appearance of living for God. But the truth behind the surface, the reality is this, you are sinning against God. I think he used the word robber and he used the word thievery there as a reminder of that they were trying to rob God ultimately because they didn't see the temple as a place about God's glory. They were robbing God of his glory. They were making it about themselves. Interestingly enough, this is not the first time that God had to address this with his people. Jeremiah chapter seven, 600 years before the birth of Jesus. In Jeremiah's day, the people were living however they wanted to live and thinking they could go to the temple and everything would be okay. Listen to God's words and not listen to what God says. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? God gives the sobering statement, behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. In other words, in Jeremiah's day, the people were living however they wanted to, but they'd go to the temple and think, that's okay. I'm in the temple, man, I worship God. I'm in the temple, I love God. In fact, they even said, oh, God, we're delivered. Thank you for setting me free. Thank you for your grace and mercy in my life. Thank you. And then they'd leave, and they'd go live and do whatever they wanted to do. Jesus' day, Jesus looks in Mark chapter 11 and says this same exact phrase. What he's exposing is this. He's exposing the fact that their religion was simply an outward facade, a mask, a false advertisement because their hearts were far from God. I believe wholeheartedly what God is saying in this moment, but you've made it a den of robbers. He's calling them to examine themselves and examine their worship. In our culture today, we'd say, check yourself. Jesus is saying for each of us, check yourself, examine yourself. Are you genuine in your worship? Do you truly love God? Do you come here to give God the glory? Do you come together to serve him? Do you come together to worship him? Do you come here because you want to honor him and give him the first fruits in your life, bless him by your obedience? Do you want to do those things? Or are you really just here to give an outward appearance? Keep up the perception of other people. Oh, yeah, he's a pretty good guy. Third thing, and i got to move quickly, is this. I want you to see Jesus' call for repentance. Jesus' call for repentance. Mark chapter 11, there's only one more verse in our main text. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, wait a second, I I don't read anywhere in these verses that Jesus called them to repent. Where do you see that in the scripture? Well, you don't see it in Mark chapter 11 directly, but you definitely see it in the background of this passage of scripture. In fact, if you got your Bibles for just a moment, the words will be on the screen if you don't have them, but turn to John chapter 2 for just a moment. Do you remember that I said earlier that three years earlier, Jesus had been in the same temple dealing with the religious leaders over the same type of issue? Remember that? Jesus, three years earlier, in the same place with many of the same people addressing the same issue, called for a clear call to repentance. 
Well, how do we repent? What do we do if there are things in our life that, that Jesus is bringing to the surface? I mean, what are these guys to do? Jesus has thrown the, the temples, he's flipped uh, the, flown, uh, the, the tables, he's flipped them upside down, pushed the chairs. They know good and well what's going on. Jesus has brought the issues to the surface. Well, what are you to do then? Jesus calls them to repent, and I believe he calls us to repent. Well, how do we do that? We do that first by turning away from our sin. John chapter 2, three years earlier, listen to what the Bible says in verse 16. To those who were selling the doves, he said, four words, take these things, where? Away. Get rid of them. Remove them from you. Stop making my father's house a place of business. The word repentance literally means a changed mind. It gives the idea that we were going one direction, we realize our sin, we realize the error of our ways, and we literally have a changed mind. The idea is we are agreeing with God about what he has said of our sin. So we turn from our sin, we repent of it, we turn away from it, and we then turn to the things of the Lord. What Jesus was saying three years earlier in John chapter two was this, these things that you're doing, these practices, this, this religious facade that you're putting on, the, put these things away from you, turn away from your sin. But the second part of that is this, not only must we turn away from our sins, secondly, we must also trust Jesus to save us from our sin. John chapter two, you cannot read that command where Jesus says, put these things away from you without explaining what happened after that. Right after Jesus said, put these things away from you, he began to tell them of how he was going to die and three days later, raise again from the grave. In other words, guys, I'm telling you to put these things away from you, but you can't do this on your own. The power of the gospel is not that I have the power in myself to change. The power of the gospel is because Jesus Christ came and because he died and because he has the power to raise again from the grave and the power to give new life to all who believe. The power of the gospel is, is that because I can trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, he can forgive me, he can set me free, he can make me a brand new creation. And as a result of that, when I repent of my sins and trust in Jesus, he gives me the power to now walk in victory, walk in the new life that's found only in him. This repentance is Jesus is saying, turn from your sin, but that is impossible without first trusting in Jesus to rescue us from our sin. In fact, the very next chapter in John chapter 3, the well-known verses that we all know, at least one of them, says it this way. The very next chapter after Jesus tells them to remove those things from their midst, it says this, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Listen to the next verse, verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him, Jesus, is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Which brings me back to Mark chapter 11. Jesus is here in this temple speaking to the religious leaders. Again, he's rebuking and confronting their sin. Again, he's speaking these words of truth. Again, they have the opportunity to repent. But listen to their response in verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard this. They heard what he was saying. Next statement. And began seeking 
how to destroy him. These leaders had no idea that this would be their last opportunity to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. In fact, at the bottom of your worship guide, as you read through the scripture readings this week, you're going to read through Matthew chapter 21, and you'll find right after this, Jesus, as he's walking along the road with his disciples, rebuked and cursed a fig tree, which seemed so strange and out of place. But he was doing that as a sign of what was about to take place with these same religious leaders who had rejected him and were now missing their opportunity. This morning, I don't know every name here. I don't know every story. I don't know every background. I don't know all the details. I know how we look on the outside. But I want to remind us, God sees the heart. And this morning, right where we are, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can. The Bible says that Jesus came and he lived a sinless life and he gave his life as a substitute in our place. That if you believe in Jesus, that he died and rose again, and if you will confess him to be your Lord and Savior, today you will be rescued from your sin and you will be saved. You'll experience the joy of having eternal life. But maybe you're here today and you'd say, you know, Pastor, I, I am a Christian. By God's grace, I've been saved. I, I wonder in each of our lives, are there things that God is bringing to the surface? Are there some tables in our life that God's kind of kicked around a little bit at today? Has he brought things to mind that we need to repent of and turn from? You know, on a Sunday, a beautiful day outside, day of celebration, uh, great music, all these different things, it can be easy to have an appearance of being in a right relationship with God and living for him and be completely far from him at the same time. And so, friend, I want you to know this morning, God loves you right where you are. He wants you to come to him by faith and experience his grace. And he loves us so much, he doesn't want us to stay that way. He wants to mold us and to shape us to be the vessel he wants us to be. I want my life, the temple of my body, the Bible tells us that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit today. I want my life to be a house of prayer. I, I believe God wants my home and your home to be a house of prayer. God wants this body of believers to be a house of prayer. And by his grace and for his glory, I pray that we'll say yes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to our hearts and lives today. Thank you for the reminder of how you called us, uh, your children. Not, not all of us necessarily, but everyone who's accepted Jesus as, your Lord and, as our Lord and Savior. God, you've called us your children. We're grateful for that. Lord, if there's any here today that does not know the joy of that relationship with you, I pray, God, that you would make them aware of that. And I pray, God, today that you would assure them that you desire to save them, forgive them, and set them free. So God, I pray that right now they would have the faith to believe that and the conviction to confess Jesus as their Lord. God, if there's any that are here today that are saved and yet we would be honest to admit, you know, my, my life, my home, it's not been a house of prayer. God, I pray that you would convict us of those things as well. 
Show us in our life what needs to be removed so that it can be the place you've called it to be. God is a church. God, we don't want to play church. God, we don't want to just represent the culture around us either. God, we want to be the church that you want us to be. So help us to look to you in all things. Convict us where it's needed. Comfort us where it's needed. Change us, Lord, where it's needed, I pray in Jesus' name. Right now, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, all over the building, right where you're sitting today. If you're here today, and you just be honest, you say, Pastor, I'm so thankful God has saved me. I know I'm a believer. I know that heaven is my home. But maybe you would just be honest to say, you know, I needed this message today. Because my life, my home, it's, it's not really been a place of prayer. God is convicting me today. God's convicting me. There are some things in my life that need to be removed and turned away from so that my home and my life can be what God wants to be. Pastor, would you pray for me? If that's you, would you just slip up your hand high and say, Pastor, that's me. Man, thank you for your honesty today. You can put your hands down. I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. Thank you for your honesty. Whatever those things are that God's bringing to mind right now, would you just confess them to him? 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right now, just confess them to him. If you're here today and you'd say, Pastor, you know, you talked about those people that had an appearance of being religious, of being godly. They did go to the temple after all, and they did even pray after all. But they really weren't living for God. In fact, they they really didn't have a relationship with it's just an outward appearance. Maybe you're here today and you just be honest and say, you know, Pastor, that's me today. You know, like I'm a pretty good person. I do, I try to do good to my family or my neighbors, people that are around me. And, you know, I try to do good things. I come to church on Sundays, but man, I, I really don't have a relationship with God. Like it's not, I know these things are right and good, but I don't know what that means to have a relationship with God. And I need that in my life today. I want to know without a doubt that God is my Father, that I've been saved from my sins. Pastor, that's me. If that be you, would you just slip up your hand high? Just acknowledge it. Put it back down in a moment. Thank you for your honesty. For those of you who just raised your hand, I want you to know that a relationship with God begins the very moment that you believe in Jesus and what he's done for you and confess him to be the Lord and Savior, the ruler over your life. You don't have to doubt or question that relationship with God. You can experience that by faith. So that's you today, and you just raised your hand, or maybe you didn't and should have. Would you just pray something like this with me right where you're sitting? Would you just say, God, I know that I'm a sinner and that I've done things that are wrong. But God, I do believe that you love me, and I do believe that Jesus came and he died on the cross for the sins of all the world, including mine. And I believe that he rose again, and because... God, you have the power to give life. I pray that you would forgive me and save me. God, I pray that you would give me the gift of eternal life and make me a brand new person for you. And God, help me from this day forward as I live my life with you and for you. God, I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.